Well, this morning we are continuing our study uh, in the book of Genesis. And um, just to remind you, we are this year and uh, probably well into next year, we are working our way through the book of Genesis and the book of Romans and in chunks. Uh, so as not to hopefully get too um, bogged down in any one book. They're both huge and they're both crucial to understanding uh, the good news about Jesus and the story of the Bible. And so we are right now in, in the middle of the story of Abraham. And we've come to chapter 17 today. And uh, you have your worship folder there uh, you, to page 10. We're going to read all of chapter 17. And it's... Uh, Let's just say that um, this is a crucial chapter in the Bible, and there's a lot in here. We won't obviously touch on even most of that, but we will also get to come back to it when we get to Romans chapter 4, because that chapter, uh, Paul uh, leads us in lots of rich um, teaching and explanation, application. So let's listen uh, as uh, we read Genesis 17 here. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram. But your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, All the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And that shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, 
But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house, or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, just as a reminder, Genesis is the first of the five books that Moses wrote to God's people as they're on their way from Egypt after 400 years of slavery to the promised land. And usually, you know, we think of the whole idea of the gospel as primarily a New Testament idea. But what I want you to understand is that actually the New Testament teaches us something very different. It teaches us that God preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand. That is, before Jesus came. And what God said to Abraham is, in you shall all the nations be blessed. And so what I want you to hear, and keep, that's why I keep saying this week after week, is that the story of Abraham is a good news story. That the gospel is not a New Testament only thing. It is a Bible thing. All the way back to the early chapters of this amazing book God has given us. It's a good news story. And it leads to Jesus. However, as we come again here to chapter 17, uh, you know, you, you, you probably heard in the, in the passage, Abraham is 99 years old. Sarah is about 90 years old. 13 years have passed since chapter 16. And Sarai's plan to deal with this problem that uh, they don't have any children. It's been about 25 years since God appeared to Abraham and his homeland and called him to leave and to come to Canaan and promise to make him a blessing to the nations. And yet... They have no offspring, no children. And it would certainly feel and seem as though um, God's promises aren't coming to pass. They still remain unfulfilled. And so I think there's a question that we're intended to ask is how can we continue to say and believe that this is a good news story when it appears to be the exact opposite of that. And, that. and that's really the question I want us to wrestle with this morning. How can the good news be good news 
when your life experience argues the opposite. In order to do that, I want us to to see uh, three things. First of all, I want us to see and understand what I'm calling the structure of the good news. And I'll, I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment. And after doing that, though, laying out the structure of the good news, I want us to ask the question, well, why does that matter? What's the so what? Why do we need to pay attention to that? And then we'll finish with, if that's true, well, then what now? What difference does this really make for you and for me here and now? So first, let's look at the structure of the good news. Let me give you a big picture, okay? Um, Context is everything when it comes to reading the Bible. And if we're really going to understand chapter 17, we have to read it in light of Abraham's whole story, especially chapter 12, which is the beginning of it, and chapter 15, which we looked at a couple weeks ago, just as a, as a refresher, or perhaps um, if you're really unfamiliar with those, here's the basic ideas. Chapter 12 is God's big promise and vision for the whole world through Abraham. God is going to bless the whole world through this man and his family. And that comes right after uh, ten or nine chapters of just disintegration and breakdown from chapter 3 through chapter 11. The story just spirals out of control. Chapter 15 is God demonstrating his absolute unending commitment to his people. If you remember, that's the story where Abraham takes these animals, he cuts them in half. It's this sort of strange practice and darkness descends and this smoking pot uh, and flaming torch appear and pass between these pieces. The whole point of which God is saying, if I don't keep my promise to you, Abraham, may I be cut apart in half like these animals. And Abraham is a passive participant in that whole scenario. It's all God. But then we come to chapter 17, and in this chapter, God invites Abraham to participate in this profound, world-changing plan and promise. And we have to understand all three of these together, because taken together is how we can really understand what's the structure of the good news, and why does that matter? So here's the point. Why, why go back over 12, chapter 12, 15, and 17? Because what I hope what you're hearing and picking up on is that the good news is fundamentally relational. It's all about God and his relationship to his people. It is not a transaction. It's not, uh, I pay this and then I get this. This is not a business transaction. This is a relationship. Now, what does that mean? There is a grammar to this relationship. So, so to borrow from, from maybe English, uh, you know, freshman English class in high school or college, you communicate effectively 
by using grammar well. And if you're going to understand how the gospel works, even when everything in your life would suggest otherwise, you've got to understand the grammar of this relationship. And how, what is this grammar? First of all, there's really only two parts to this language, unlike um, the English language. Uh, it begins with God's gracious initiative. And it's followed by Abraham's response. So what I want you to think about, it begins with God, chapters 12 and 15. And it's followed by Abraham's response, which we will see here in chapter 17. And I want to give you names for these ingredients. The first aspect of this relationship is what we might call the indicative of the good news. Maybe if you reach back into freshman English again, the indicative is simply a statement of fact. It's what is. But then there's also the imperative of the good news. And an imperative is what to do. It's an instruction. It's a response to the fact, to what actually is. So think of it like this. That the, the grammar of the good news has two parts. An indicative, what God has done, and an imperative, a response. Abraham's response to what God has done. And what you have to understand is that those two things are irreversible. You cannot begin with the imperative and get to the indicative. The indicative, what God has done, who he is, is the foundation from which the imperative, the response follows. They're irreversible, but they're also inseparable. We can't take them apart and treat them as if you could do away with one or the other, and here's why. Take Genesis chapter 15. This amazing picture of God showing Abraham his unending commitment to him. Abraham is entirely passive. You might get the impression that relationship with God really is just God does everything. He doesn't call me into anything. He doesn't ask anything of me. He's just absolutely committed to me. It doesn't matter how I respond. There, there's a term for that. It's called license. And that's just not taught in the Bible anywhere. Though it's a problem that we face often in the Bible. But then there's the opposite problem. What if there's only the imperative? What if all we think is Genesis 17? Abraham, keep my covenant. Do this. What we lead to then is just legalism, self-righteousness, superiority. So they are irreversible and they are inseparable. And this grammar, this structure of the good news runs throughout the whole Bible. You see it here at the beginning of our passage when God appears to Abram and he says, I am God Almighty. That's the indicative. That's the statement of fact. But then from that flows, here is the imperative. What's the response? God calls Abraham and says, walk before me and be blameless. Live in a relationship with me because of who I am 
Because who I have declared you to be and called you to be and what I have promised to you. Now, with that idea, that structure, that grammar, hopefully fresh in your mind, these two components, I want to I look at them each a little bit more closely. What do we learn about the indicative from this passage? Look in verses 1 through 8. In verses 1 through 8, the first thing I want you to notice is that the indicative, it's all about God and his work. Just look with me here. Notice verse 1. I am God Almighty. Verse 2. I will make my covenant between me and you. Look down now to to verse 5. I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I, verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations. Verse 7, I will establish my covenant. Verse 8, I will give to you and to your offspring after you. And at the end, I will be their God. Eight times in these eight verses, God says, I will do something. I will be this kind of God towards you. The indicative begins with who God is and his work. But second, I want you to notice that the indicative, the first part of the good news, it's an identity-shaping promise. What do I mean? Well, look here. What happens? What does God do for both Abram and Sarah? Look what he says here in verse 4. God says, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations, and kings will come from you. Drop down to verse 15. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Do you see what's happening here? In this chapter, in this relationship, God is reshaping who they are, their identity, Now, you might not catch this, but this this identity-shaping promise, it's an echo of the early chapters of Genesis 1 and 2. When God gives Adam and Eve their identity and their calling to subdue the earth and to be fruitful and multiply, that's what he's doing here for Abraham and Sarah. But don't forget... Abraham is 99 years old. Sarah is 90. It's been 25 years since they left their homeland. And God continues to make these promises. And they continue to wait. So first of all, this indicative, it's about God, but it's an identity-shaping promise. And last, I want you to see that it's a gift. It can't be engineered. And you see this... And note in Abraham's response here to what God is saying to him in this chapter. In verse 17, it says, Abraham fell on his face and laughed. 
and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, notice this is the only time he speaks in this chapter. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Which takes you back to chapter 16. What Abraham is saying is, God, I, 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 what you're saying, it, it's, it's laughable to me. I don't see how this is possible. And you see, that's the point. If you don't come to a point where Abraham comes to here, you've not yet understood the good news. You still think there is a way for you to connect the dots of this good news story. And what we're being told here about the grammar of the good news is it is a gift. It can't be engineered. It's a supernatural phenomenon, which is why God says in verse 19, no, but Sarah, she will bear a son to you. And you're going to call his name Isaac. And I will keep my covenant with him. And all of your descendants after him. But what then do we learn about the imperative part, the response, what flows out of this fact of who God is and what he has done? Notice, first of all, we see that there's a sign of this covenant. Look in verse 10. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Now, as I was thinking about this this week, at first I was like, oh my goodness. Um, Foreskins, flesh, circumcision. This is really weird. We are really far removed from this. This is not anything like what we deal with. And then I thought, I have four boys. <laughs> uh, our familiarity with this concept of circumcision is almost, um, unless you are Jewish or you have Jewish friends, is almost purely on the medical level. And if you... Uh, have children, and particularly, obviously, if you've had a boy, you've been asked, do you want your son to be circumcised? And you ask, okay, well, what are the medical benefits or the pros and the cons of doing this? And, and that's about the extent of it. But in the ancient Near East, circumcision was very common among Hebra- uh, uh, the ancient Near Eastern people groups, uh, even in Egypt. And in fact, the Philistines were seen as odd because they didn't practice circumcision. But what's really important for us to notice, in contrast to uh, the historical time and practice, we see something new here. You see, because in the ancient Near East, during this time, circumcision was a It was a tribal badge. It was a coming of age ceremony for a young man who was entering into the full rights and privileges of the tribe and of his manhood. But did you notice 
in this passage, what does God say? He says, he who is eight days old is to be circumcised. You see, circumcision is not a coming-of-age ceremony. It's not about our arrival. Circumcision is about our entrance into a relationship with the living God. That's what's being communicated here. Circumcision in the Bible compared to uh, their contemporaries has a totally different meaning. It's not about an arrival. It's not a statement about who I now am because of where I have come. It is about an entrance into a relationship of God's declaration of who you are, where you belong, where you were headed. It is a sign of his unending loyalty to his people. So that's the first thing. It's a sign. But the second thing here is, is the meaning, which I just talked about. And you might be wondering, uh, to add a little bit to that, why, why this bit about the foreskin? What's the deal here? Why pick circumcision to get all this across? Well, the, the Bible's kind of an earthy book. And circumcision, um, to put it as, as, as sort of, I don't know, generically as I can, is a way of saying God laying claim to the offspring of Abraham's descendants. Circumcision was a way to set apart his offspring. It was a sign that these people these descendants, those who are connected to Abraham and all those that come after him are special. Not because they are special, but because God has declared them special. Now, what's the last bit here about this this imperative? Is the fruit of this. You have the sign, you have the meaning, but what about the fruit, the response? Remember what I was saying before. The response comes from God's action, God's promises. The response doesn't get God to act. It doesn't get God to make promises. You see, the imperative, the response, is the fruit. Remember, Genesis 15, Abraham's entirely passive. Genesis 17, notice in verse uh, 22 to the end of the chapter, after God is done talking with Abraham, what does he do? He responds in loyalty and obedience to God in light of this good news. Now, that's the structure. I know that's a lot. And it's having to be a little bit teachy because I really want you to kind of get some of this. But now let's ask why. So what? Why does this matter? And I think we can answer this, and I can want to show you why this matters by asking two questions. One, how does religion answer this question, the so what question? Why the structure of the good news matters, this indicative and this imperative? Religion's answer to that question is simply this. I obey, therefore I am accepted. That is essentially what every religion in the world says. If I follow the rules or if I do the things that the deity says, 
then I can kind of figure out my status and if I'm in and if I'm accepted. And what's really ironic about this is that irreligion gives the same answer. Because in both cases, what we're saying is I must rescue and save myself in order to be accepted and loved and cherished and welcomed in. But see, Christianity's answer is entirely the opposite. Christianity's answer says the reason that the structure of the good news matters is because Christianity says I am fully loved and accepted by sheer grace. By a free gift. And therefore, because of that, I obey. I respond in love and loyalty to God. Now, what I want you to understand is that these are two totally different motives for living your life. And what is kind of um, ironic is that any one of us here today, you can be sitting next, next to one another and look the same and even say the same things and yet your hearts are operating on two totally different motivational structures. One that says, I have to. The other says, God already has. Those are two totally different ways of living your life. Now, how would you know which one you are most shaped by? Let me give you, there's a bunch of ways to do this. I just want to give you one diagnostic for each case. The religious one and the gospel one. How would you know if you are living a religious answer to this good news story of saying, I have to measure up and then I'll be okay? Here's how you you, you would know. Look for evidence of entitlement in your life. Look for those moments when you find yourself saying, I deserve better. Because what we're saying in those moments is that you want God's things, but you don't want God. Now, what about another diagnosis? What do you look for if, if the, the gospel is shaping you? Look for any evidence of joy in your life. Any evidence of joy. I'm not saying a lot. I'm not saying all the time. I'm saying any evidence of joy where you might find yourself saying something like this look what God has done for me of all people look what God has done for me those are two ways to kind of tell which motivational structure is ruling in my life now that's the so what that's why it matters getting this gospel grammar right makes all the difference when especially your life suggests that the good news might not be true. Well then now what? What are we supposed to do with that? Let me, let me try to land this plane for us and, and look at it like this. Take in verses 4 through 8 again. Here, 
God is essentially saying, hey, as for me, this is what I'm going to do. This is who I will be towards you. And it's him saying, I am making my covenant with you. What does this mean for us? What I want you to see is that God acts the same throughout the story of the scriptures to Abraham and to us. He never changes. He acts the same throughout the story. He still initiates. He still says, I am coming to you. He still comes to us with his word and promise, but it's even better now. Why? Because the word is now a person in the flesh, Jesus Christ. And he still keeps his word. And we know know now in light of Jesus and the cross, the lengths to which God is willing to go to keep that word. That the cross is God saying, at infinite cost to myself, I will remain faithful to you. Now, I want you to know this. This is true even in light of the fact that Abraham lies, he struggles, he doubts. It's even true as Sarah despairs and schemes. It's even true as you and I do all of those things. It's why God gave a sign. A sign to remind his people to point to something greater than them. Now that's the as for God, what he's committed to. But what about the as for you? The response part. What this means is, if this is true, this is a story you have to enter into. You have to participate in it. It's a story that God, like I said, it's relational. It requires a relationship. You must enter into this story on God's terms. Which is simply to say this, you enter into it on his terms when you enter into it by faith, not by your efforts. You see, this is how it happens. How can I enter into this story? Well, that's why we read from Colossians 2 earlier. Listen to what we, we read earlier. It says, in Christ also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. How you enter into this story is Jesus has to circumcise your heart. He has to cut away our flesh. He has to take away the power and guilt of sin. And what is the sign that we now have that you have with you to your grave and beyond that that is true? The sign is baptism. It's why we don't practice circumcision anymore in the church. It's because baptism connects us to Jesus. It is the sign that tells us what the death and resurrection of Jesus means for us personally. And I I don't want to go off down a rabbit trail, but this is also why 
we baptize our children who will not remember being baptized. Because here's the thing. Remembering the day that you got baptized is immaterial. What matters is you have the sign. When you have the sign, and here's the other beautiful thing about the sign of baptism, into a covenant community, other people saw you get that sign. They are now part of reminding you of what that sign points to. It doesn't point to you and your commitment and your diligence. What's it point to? It points to Jesus. One of the older catechisms uses the language of you're engaged to him. You belong to him. You are wed to him. So here's where I want you to to end. I want you to see that this is a good news story. Even when, like Abraham, everything in your life might suggest otherwise. God has given us this gospel grammar. We have to learn it and tell it to ourselves and tell it to one another again and again every day. Because what the gospel tells you, you are fully loved and accepted by sheer grace. And when that penny drops, living your life is no longer about getting God to love you or getting God's things. It's about knowing him loving him, resembling him. It's what the Bible calls a life of freedom. And that is the good news story of Abraham. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask that as we continue to wrestle with this story and see how you've told it and where it takes us, both personally, but also in your huge vision for the world through Jesus, we ask that you would Help us to see and to believe that there is good news for us wherever we find ourselves today. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.